Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. How you doing, Internet? It is March 27th, 2017, and you're listening to Waypoint Radio, live from Lobby One in Vice HQ. It's me today, and I'm also joined by Patrick Klepek. How you doing, Patrick? What if I just, like, ducked out of the way and just left you? <laughs> it would just be me. Yep. It would be me just talking say, to nope, myself. It's just the Danielle uh, Rando <laughs> solo hour. That's right. Just going to you know, drop some hot a- ACLU jams, talk yeah, about being we'll an ambulance. about that. Yeah, we'll talk about some ambulance time. I'll take some questions about minor injuries. <laughs> ambulance, ambulance time might, could be your spinoff podcast in which you tell us all how to stop being bad humans and, and treat our bodies better. <sighs> I, that's a great idea. Why don't we have this already? I, I, make, the, make a note. Make a note. I'm, I'm talking to my production friends, of course. We have, we have Dylan Coburn and Tim Barnes off camera making this happen. It is episode 51, Area 51. I know uh, you're big into the X-Files. I am. I am. Well, certain seasons. Let's let's be specific. That's That's, understandable. Yeah, come on. You know, like first six seasons, then after that, you know, it's a debate. Yeah, we we have some some issues from there. Although I I do like that terrible, what is it? It's called FPS or something. The VR video game episode is pretty fun. Oh, yeah. That's in season seven. That was pretty fun. There are are good episodes in the later uh, run of the X-Files, but yeah, it is. uh, You got to start picking and choosing at a certain point. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, It's also my mom's birthday, so shout out to my mom. Congratulations. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. She made it. You know, I'm pretty happy (laughs) about that. You did it. (laughs) You did it. You, you got a year older. Hey, man, so, uh, as you yeah. get older, that's no small feat. Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. I think she's 66 now, Route 66 for my mom. And, uh, you know, that's pretty pretty exciting. So uh, instead of talking about my mom, which I would love to do, I'd love to get her on the show someday. Again, be another very fun. separate spinoff podcast. But that's a spinoff. <laughs> Me and my mom. <laughs> Mama Riendo. That would be the name of that there you podcast, go. Hey, you, I man, you're, you're coming up with a lot of content that sounds like you're going to leave yes. Waypoint and just build the... The Riendo Podcast Universe. <laughs> I, I think, you know, the three people who would listen to that would be very happy, but I don't know if that's sustainable for my life. Your, so mo- your instead, mom might guess... be the only one listening to the conversations between you <laughs> exactly. and your mom. Exactly. My mom, my dad, and my sister. See, those are the three people hey, you listening know, to that. That may not sustain the ad revenue you need, but it sustains the ad revenue in your heart. Yes, that family love, that beautiful family love. Well, speaking of family love, what games have you been playing? When you're gaming family, there is a segue. My gaming family? Um, <laughs> I, I, yeah, this weekend I uh, continued down uh, the, the descent into near, uh, oh, are we going to, okay, oh, right, yeah. so Automata, people are, wait, so now what is the, how are we actually supposed to sit? Automata? Automata, a- automata or Automata? Automata, I think automata? like Automaton. Like automata- automaton. I feel like we're gonna settle on a pronunciation. We're gonna and then, make it wrong. Yeah. Uh, okay. I'm gonna acknowledge that I don't know how to say it. I'm just gonna say automatic because otherwise I'm gonna like. I'll just call it near. I'll just call it near. Everyone just knows what near. I'm talking about. Everyone's near. everyone's the got new it. Near. Um, 
<laughs> so yeah, I you know I've been continuing to to play that and really got uh, sucked in uh, to. Uh, so one thing I'll say up front, I'm not going to spoil anything that happens in uh, in in near um, there. If you want to finish the whole game, it is a it is not a. It, 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 it is no small leap. Uh, my uh, my uh, uh, timer at the end of it, uh, my final save, I think was forty or forty one hours. Uh, there is probably a little bit of a bloated time on there where sometimes I leave games on pause and have to go deal with my kid and stuff like that. So like maybe if yeah. you buffer in an hour or two, but like I, I did uh, the vast majority of the side quests. I saw all the uh, main endings uh, A through E. Um, oh, nice. There are lots of other sort of like uh, side endings that we've talked about on the show before. Like if you do, do different goofy things, um, <laughs> they can end the game in different ways. But uh, and this is something I'm going to write about this week. I, I if you go down the path of Nier, you should go the whole path. Um, if you finish the first ending, it is an ending. But I, I, I would say you describe the game in terms of chapters, and you really want to see. The f- all five chapters. The first three chapters are the meatiest. They're, they're going to take you uh, the longest. Um, chapters four and five, endings D uh, and E, are very quick. You can do them in under an hour. Um, they're essentially oh, cool. alternate paths uh, for different decisions that are made um, towards the, the end of the story um, as opposed to, you know, B and C, which are, like, literally, you know, like, between eight and 12 hours, depending on how much time you're putting into the side stuff and upgrading your equipment. But... Uh, like I don't have any problem saying at the end of seeing ending E that I think uh, Nier is a masterwork. It is probably one of my favorite games I've ever played. Uh, wow! It's it is a I think a tremendous accomplishment in terms of the questions it asks, like the places it takes you to as a player. And for people that have finished it, if you have seen ending E, um, without getting into what occurs, there is a very specific ask made of the player. Um, that is few things have weighed on me more than what it asked me to do. And I don't want to say anything more about it because I, I want to keep it uh, devoid of context except to uh, just paint the picture that it's one of the more, most painful things I've had to do playing a video game. And I'm going to write about it, which I'll get, be more specific and ex- kind of explain the context of that. But it is a profound question that is asked of the player that – I really wish I could say more about it, and maybe they'll be, do some sort of near spoiler cast with some other folks that have finished it in the in the future. But it is, it is truly something special, and I really encourage more folks to play. Like the the article I wrote last week that kind of dis- discussed um, some of these sort of existential and like broader and meta questions that asked about robots and, and humanity and consciousness. Like it doesn't just like touch on that. Like it dives about as deep as it can go, and goes to some ex- incredibly dark. And cynical, but also hopeful places. Like it really runs the spectrum uh, in a way that I was not expecting for a game that prior to me playing it, I thought was like, oh, it's just you a game where you kill some robots, and like that'll be fine, <laughs> which would have been sure. fine. Lots of games are fine where all you do uh, are kill robots, and and by the end of the game, the robot killing was actually pretty boring by my estimation. Like I. It was wildly overleveled, like nothing could really stop me. Um, but it's a testament to the game that uh, the storytelling was such a hook that even though all I was kind of doing was just bashing on the same buttons and never having to really think about what I was doing anymore, I, I needed to see what was on the other side. And what's also important about the storytelling in this game is that it is, and especially this moment I'm sort of extremely vaguely describing at the sort of end of my 40 hour journey. 
can only happen in a video game. Like it is it near specifically takes advantage of the medium in a way that makes the 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 path that goes down very powerful and it wouldn't work the same if it was a movie or a book or or any any other way. And I think not not to say that every story told in a video game has to explicitly take advantage of the medium, I think you can tell sort of traditional stories in video games just fine. Um, but there is something special. There's something interesting about when the storytelling can take uh, that into account. Um, and it, as someone that enjoys video games, like like you do, like we all do here at Waypoint, when you find something like that where you can point to it and be like, "Man, like that is something unique to a video game." You don't really come across a lot of games that manage to pull that off, and and near absolutely did in a way that completely <laughs> completely blew me away. I was not <laughs> near was not really on my radar this year and now it is going to be the game that I I will find myself wrestling and thinking about probably for the rest of the year. Oh, that's wow. That is that is like the highest that and is, best sell. That is me yeah. trying to get yes. people <laughs> not I know I know Persona's coming out. I know people are probably still playing Zelda. I know you still need to go back and play Yakuza or or or, uh, or Neo, but Nier. Nier is not just a good game. I, I truly think Nier uh, is probably like one of the like I said one of the best. Personally, one of my favorite games I've ever played. I, I if I gut check it, it, I think it's already in my top ten. I don't know where that wow. sits. Yeah. I am careful to to be so hyperbolic. In the hopes that when I, I choose to be that hyperbolic, it is in service of a game that I I think more people need to play and experience and experience it all the way through to to truly understand like the the madness that lies within and and sort of the unique storytelling that um, the designer behind this uh, uh, Yoko Taro, um, who fortunately now that I've finished. Uh, at the running E, I can now confidently send him a bunch of questions. I, Square Enix has agreed to uh, let us send him a, a handful of questions for a postmortem interview, and I wanted to make sure I could sort of fully wrap my head around everything the game is trying to say um, so that it can be be that kind of interview. But yes, I'm going to continue to demand and pound the desk over near uh, in yes. the hopes that people will find the time because it is it is really – it is really something else. God, that's that's really great to hear. I, I have dipped my toe in. Certainly, I've played a couple of hours of it. I have seen a lot of it because, I, you know, last weekend I had a, a good friend, friend of the show, Amanda Cosmos, who has written for us before, uh, took me on a tour, evangelizing the game, much as, as you have right here, saying this is really something special. People shouldn't sleep on this. Uh, so she had me play sort of the first little section, a little bit, you know, section and change, basically, mm-hmm. and then showed me some of the other stuff yeah. in her sort of B playthrough, I think, is where she was at the time. And she is, she has also since sunk like 60 hours in, that kind of thing, loves it to death. Uh, it From what I've seen, it seems like something very, very special. My only question, I guess, would be uh, to people who suck at video games like yeah. myself, uh, mm-hmm. do, do you think it's worth, you know, wrestling with a little bit or, or knocking it down to easy to kind of get through the game? Like, that's Just sounds not, like you're saying, knock yes, it down to easy. I mean, and the game has yeah. – it, 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 it builds in additional tools um, for folks that are there to experience the story. There, there are explicit um, – they call them plug-in chips. It's some of the tool sets that you can equip on the player. If you knock it down to easy, there are things that essentially streamline the combat, will take take care of it, a lot of it for you, so that, you know, I, I think the gameplay is fine. I, I think it wears itself pretty thin. It does... I, I, I got to the end wishing, as someone that does enjoy combat like that and being challenged, that there was a little more depth to... Um, a little more Bayonetta in, in this game. Um, sure, But yeah. 
if it, given how strongly I respond to the story, I would encourage folks to just put it down on easy, consult walkthroughs um, to like figure out some of the quirkier ways the side quests uh, kind of unfold, um, and, and just focus on trying to get through it and enjoying that part of it because the the actual way the story unfolds, the way it uses multiple viewpoints to unmask things that you think you already understand, and then. You know, it is revealed there, you know, you had barely an understanding of what was going on. Like, all that stuff is worth experiencing, and it is, it is not, uh, the gameplay is fine, but I, and it is serviceable, um, but it is not necessarily where, why I'd be espousing so much of what I loved about the game. Um, and so I would encourage people to do whatever they need to do, uh, in order to continue playing. Awesome. Well, I need to. I need to actually go into it more. I I can't tear myself away from Zelda right now, but I'm I'm at the point in Zelda where I've probably put like eighty plus hours in, and I I'm I'm probably gonna finish it and then kind of move on. To how many shrines? How many shrines have you happens. done at this point? Sixty something. Okay. It's not even all of them. Yeah, it's yeah. Not even all yeah. of them. I'm just spending a lot of time in the world, just fucking around, just seeing everything, just kind of doing everything there is to do. And, you know, if I see a shrine, I'll go do it, but I'm not just aiming for the shrines. I'm aiming to see, like, every inch of this world at this point. Uh, Without a horse. I still haven't ridden a horse. So Uh, Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't have, I rode a horse early on and then named named him Donnell and then uh, moved on. Like, I don't, I use fast travel just because I like to get to an area and then I'll stop using fast travel, you know, and just kind of explore yeah. the the depths of that area. But I don't like I want to be able to climb. I, like every time I would get on a horse, thinking, well, maybe I should be using horses more. I would just end up getting off and then climbing a mountain and being like, well, that yeah. horse. I'm kind of just being a dick. I'm just like bringing this horse out <laughs> and be like, hey, stay at the bottom of this mountain. I'm gonna see you later, Yeah, I'm gonna Donald, laser warp you know? to the other side of the map, and uh, I don't know, find your way back to a stable. So I, I ditched, I ditched horses pretty quickly, and have not found them to be a particularly useful part of the adventure. Mostly because, yeah, I like going into the nooks and crannies, and I, I took people's advice early on and invested a ton of uh, shrine upgrades into stamina as opposed to hearts. Um, and then just started making a lot of food that gave me temporary hearts to make up for that. Exactly. Because yeah. – so now I have a full two circles of stamina, which means like when combined with uh, a, a, you know uh, any sort of stamina boosts that you can get through uh, cooking, I can scale just about everything without having to worry about like the st- – like the – have I, if I, you know, am I going to run out of stamina? Am I going to fall? Like, and that was fine in the first 20 hours of the game, like to have that element of like, oh God, like, you know, I got to pick and choose where I'm going to climb. But now I, I just want to see everything. And so yeah. investing in that stamina has really paid off because, because now I can do that. Yeah. I'm definitely at the point where I have like all the climbing gear and, uh, more than two circles of, of stamina and, all my speed boost stuff. So like I'm scaling mountains like faster <laughs> than I can run. It's amazing. It's so much fun. I just oh god. Because you get really you get in love some with this of the game. you get some of the the boost stuff from doing like the shrine side quests, right? Like that's where you get like special armor that like makes yeah you climbing can get special easier. armor. Yeah, there's there's like climbing equipment basically. There's climbing boots and then there's like a climbing shirt which apparently makes you climb. E- Link looks really cool in this. It's like a pink and blue little getup. It's actually, he looks like a little MMA fighter or something. Like, and it's very cute, you know. So, of course, I'm wearing that everywhere I go. It's pretty fun. Uh, but, yeah, Zelda's amazing. We've probably, I've probably talked about Zelda enough, but I did have a really great experience this weekend. I just want to tell a little story. 
So my aim in life has always been, I'm, I'm a massive Zelda fan. I love the Zelda games. My aim in life, ever since I've been dating my girlfriend, who is sort of the first person who also loves games as much as I do that I've dated, uh, that we would play a Zelda game together. Like, I've always wanted to be like, let's just go through Wind Waker, let's do all the dungeons. And she's always been like, yeah, sure, but it never happened because there was never a new Zelda game mm-hmm. when we've been together. And, you know, inevitably, two game journalists, we tend to play the things that are new because right. it's important to be up on things. We finally played a Zelda dungeon together last night, and it was just the best experience in my life. She hated it because she hates <laughs> puzzles and games. <laughs> it was, it's funny. We're like opposite people. I love the puzzles. Like, that's why I play Zelda games. I love the puzzles. And Breath of the Wild has a lot of puzzles. Out. <laughs> I know. It's like the game for me. It's very special. Uh, so she's like, honey, can you just like do this for me? And I was like, well, why don't we work through it together? Which she was like, oh, fuck, fine. And so we, we kind of like took our time. Like, we figured out all the puzzles together. And then she she beat the boss, which she was very annoyed at, but that was fine. It was just like a really special moment of like we're sharing a thing that I love, even if you hate it, and it's it's special to me, you know. That's cool. When, when people are, you know, when you can work together, it's a it's a beautiful thing. It, Couples yeah, game together. Yeah, it's it's always you know I've always talked about you know how the uh, me and my wife play the Telltale games together. That's like the yeah. one way we kind of like funnel you know her interests in storytelling with my interests in in games and it is nice when you can find ways to make it's given how you know so you know so isolated games tend to make you as a player like in a great way like uh feel like it is fun when you get those opportunities to do that with your significant other instead of just sitting side by side doing different things and not, yeah. <laughs> not collaborating on the same thing <laughs> Yeah, we always kind of joke that, like, our cats must think we're really, like, weird and shitty because we're just always <laughs> looking at, like, little screens, and they're just like, what the hell? What's wrong with you? Why aren't you feeding me more? <laughs> that's fair. Yeah, you know, the things I think of, you know. Uh, but I think that's a good time for us to transition into our sort of second topic today, which probably won't take too, too long, but this is something you actually brought up uh, today, Patrick, and it has to do with YouTube and advertisers pulling out of YouTube because of a lot of the sort of hate speech that's been spewed around, and it relates to gaming, of course, with the JonTron story, which you wrote about, and sort of the PewDiePie story, which you also took on a little bit. Yeah, the New York Times and Wall Street Journal and other places have been reporting in the last week or so. It's kind of been an ongoing uh, story is that – so now what's happening is uh, – so like The Guardian discovered uh, – a newspaper in the UK discovered that um, there were advertisements that they were paying for that were being plastered on uh, hate speech, um, you know, like articles uh, or videos discussing, you know, how uh, all men are rapists and that's okay and like really like like really – disgusting like yeah like the extreme of the the fringes um and the guardian realized this we're like we're subsidizing the ability for these people to to you know espouse this hate speech and so they remove you know and this this happening because the way youtube ads work is they just kind of get automatically plastered onto uh videos there are certain you know you, you know, uh, advertisers can do specific targeted ad buys, but then there's also these services in which the ads just kind of appear on videos that uh, just go up on YouTube. So The Guardian, you know, wrote an article uh, or a report, you know, investigating how this happened, how this is unsettling. This prompted sort of a, a domino effect of other advertisers like Pepsi and and uh, uh, like uh, Johnson & Johnson uh, pulling out of like the advertising that can be kind of just spammed on um, sort of any sort of video. They're, they want Google to investigate how to better control um, how this stuff appears on uh, you know, the really extremist uh, uh, hate speech and, and other sort of things that they would not want to associate with their brand. So to be clear, like this is, you know, there is no evidence that um, like 
this directly affects you know people like PewDiePie and JonTron. Like I think the questions people have had about um, things they've said, things they've done. Uh, th- if you think that's extreme, what's being talked about here is like a far like deeper on, on the other level. Yeah, yeah like it, it sure. is. You know, um, it's not to excuse uh, any of any of that and the of nuance course. that we could go in there. But we're not saying that like advertisers are pulling out because of JonTron and PewDiePie. They're pulling out because of like really really fringe uh, rhetoric that, that is occurring on YouTube. But it does raise this larger question that we've kind of been talking about of, like, the broader implications of YouTube. And, like, what does it mean for a brand that has their advertising uh, associated with uh, someone, you know, a big uh, YouTube personality? Or, like, the article I wrote about, like, what happens when your kid's really into the gaming videos of this one YouTube personality? But then that gaming personality decides... Starts uh, espousing, uh, you know, white nationalist, like, alt-right uh, immigration rhetoric. And like, wow, well, that's not what I signed off on my kid watching. And so I think it's yeah. for, for parents, for, for, for brands, like, there's a lot of, like, really tough questions to think about. Because I also am sympathetic to Google's argument that, well, we have, I think it's, there was a, in the New York Times, it said they're dealing with 400 hours of new video per minute. Um <sighs> Oh, God. Which is a lot. That's a, that's a lot of video. It's <laughs> <That's> a lot. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. So how do you? I, I mean, what are your feelings on this? Like, I, I for me, this kind of hits in two places. One of which is that you know, of course, it's already always been a weird thing that sort of something akin to a public forum. It's not obviously a purely public forum, but it is is something that we have that's sort of close to that. It's always been weird that this is, of course, run by a company, mm-hmm. a private company that actually, you know, is is after revenue and not sort of the public good. This is not actually public radio or, or anything of that nature. Uh, so it's already a little weird, but I, I do uh, sympathize with the brands. And I sympathize, of course, with sort of a parent's perspective of, of wanting to have some kind of control or some kind of idea of, of actually what's going on here. Not everything is OK to be watched necessarily uh, by your children or by you know, somebody that you're, you're taking care of. Do you have, like, any specific feelings about this? Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of feelings. Like, you know, you, yeah, there was a, <laughs> a, a, a post going around Twitter this morning or maybe it was yesterday in which, uh, you know, the question has been, like, well, how is any of this this speech that's espoused by some of these popular YouTube personalities that are known for, let's say, video games, how does this impact the kids that enjoy these personalities? Like, for there was this, the one that was going around Twitter was a post from NeoGAF in which uh, I think it was an uncle was talking about how their uh, 15-year-old or like some, something like a young a teenage niece who was a big fan of uh, PewDiePie and then uh, – or was JonTron. But like anyways, like they, they – when they read about uh, what they were saying and the implications of that, like it deeply upset them to their core. It was JonTron. It was JonTron because JonTron sure. – what JonTron said was so – Far, um, yeah, um, in in, a, in an uncomfortable direction, and uh, the 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 girl was like profoundly upset, and she was like running like a JonTron fan club, you know, at her oh, high God. school, like, and it like yeah. really hurt her to her core about like why would how did, why is this person would not welcome me or my friends or the you know, and and so I guess a parent, uh, you know. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
I'm a little ways off from having to go that my kid is, you know, just turned seven months. So like I'm, you know, they're, they're really not even allowed to use phones except when they, when she grabs it and shoves it in her mouth and tries to eat it right. at the moment. That's her, that's her use right now. Yeah, of course. But, but I, I'm certainly <laughs> thinking a lot about that and realizing that I can no longer think of it in theoretical terms, like knowing that in the, you know, relatively near future, it's going to be something I have to think about in practical terms. And, you know, you also, I heard from a lot of parents that, uh, the thing that actually ends up biting them is like the YouTube suggestion algorithm. So like their kid watches a YouTuber that's been approved by the parent, but then the suggested videos take them down a rabbit hole that is completely different than the stuff that they had kind of approved and looked through. And, um, and you know, you just can't. It is not possible for you to completely police, nor should you completely police, like, what your kid discovers. Um, and a lot right. of what I heard from parents was, like, do your best to get a general sense of, of what your, your kids are seeing. But ultimately, you, what you have to do is try and equip them with the ability to have, like, a bullshit detector. The ability yeah. to sort of, like, find things, question those things, and raise questions to you about it. You know, like, about, hey, you know, dad, like, I saw this and I don't understand it. Yeah, and I think you know, there, like to get to this uh, this article that we're talking about. Um, I think it's long been ignored, and it's been a long time coming. There was going to be a reckoning with the fact that that YouTube is a private platform. People think of YouTube as sort of like a government service, but like it's not. Like it's owned <laughs> by Google, and like they are going to have every right if their bottom line is affected to start pulling advertising or doing, you know, whatever measures uh, they may feel is necessary, um, if that's impacting their ability to make money on the service that they run. And so I'm sympathetic to folks like JonTron and, and PewDiePie in the sense that they have built their business on top of this other business, but they built their business on top of another business. And yeah. that has consequences. And I think we're only getting to the stage, the beginning stages of whether a Google and YouTube try to reckon with that in some way. Yeah, it's it's really tough. It's that's a difficult question, and uh, I do always, you know, the ACLU person in me always uh, gets uncomfortable when when people, uh, you know, say something is is free speech, a protected free speech, and then they they uh, sort of bring out the whole oh this is censorship argument when it's like oh it's actually a private platform, <laughs> uh, which you know I, I get uh, certainly I, I'm in favor of free speech and so on and so forth, but it's, it's if the U.S. government did not make YouTube, and that's that's kind of the thing that we always have to remember, I guess, uh, as people living in America, yeah, and, and, uh, and, or, or or wherever, honestly, yeah, yeah. And, and and YouTube is in a complicated position because while that's true, they also need to cultivate that community. They want those personalities to be happy. Like in an ideal world, you know, they weren't dealing with all this hate speech, and it was people just playing right. video games. But like that's you know, it's 2017. It's not the world uh, we live in, and people are more than ever are you know speaking their minds uh, for for better or worse, um, and. Uh, yeah, I'm going to be curious to see how they deal with it. Because, like, like, let's take the case of, like, JonTron, where, yes, he's going off and espousing, uh, you know, I think decidedly uh, and unequivocally racist uh, views, um, uh, not only on immigration, but also just straight up about race. Um, and But that happened on Twitch, on a conversation with a different personality on a different service. And so how does that impact... YouTube. Does that impact right. YouTube? Like, I, I'm, there's a lot of complicated questions about the, you know, if someone says something on Twitter, does that impact, you know, what they say 
on YouTube? Like, is that is that grounds for you know revoking advertising for them on certain videos or all videos or the ability to monetize? Like, that's those aren't easy questions to answer, and especially because Google prefers to automate everything. This isn't right. something that you can necessarily like. Hate speech is subjective, and people will make arguments about it. Like, you can't, you know, and also, uh, you know, racist speak is not just people, you know, going as extreme and saying racial slurs. Like, it, it's, it's you know, coded language that Absolutely. is not going to be picked up by an algorithm. Absolutely. It's complicated. Uh, well, I guess it's very complicated legally and morally speaking, which is always uh, double threat, I guess. Uh, but I suppose speaking of uh, speaking your mind, I think it's probably time for us to go to the question bucket. Okay. Let's go. So, uh, Patrick, give me give me a number. Uh, let's see. We've got one to like. Oh, God, I'm scrolling and I'm scrolling and I keep scrolling. Let's say one twenty four. Twenty four. All right. Um, let's see. I'm looking at my podcast recording. We're thirty four minutes in, so I'm going to say thirty four. Oh, that's a good number. I like thirty four. I'm scrolling up and I'm scrolling up, and this is a good. This is a nice, uh, a nice short one actually. This one that comes from Nick. What's up, Nick? And Nick, Nick asks, Nick with an N-I-C. I, I like that. It's like a nice, very short shortening of Nick. A lot of games are described as cinematic experiences, and plenty of others are grounded in strong writing. But I'm wondering about less conventional sources of inspiration. Has there been a great game that strongly emulates or is inspired by Chuck Jones, the animator, and Stick the Landing? Nick. Hmm. I mean, I don't see why, why not. Um, yeah, but yeah, that's definitely those are like uncom. I mean, uh, certainly there are games that like pull aesthetic sources uh, as an inspiration. What's that uh, that shooter that's like pulling from like th- you know thirties uh, cartoon animation? Is he Cuphead. Yeah, like Cuphead. Cuphead. Yeah, that that's a good strong aesthetic. I mean, it's it's certainly using you know gameplay conventional gameplay, but it it has that incredibly strong style and that that very like. I don't have the words to describe this because I'm not an animator, but it has <laughs> no. that. It has that. I know the very, very simple the principles of animation about stretching and timing and and all that very, very classic stuff that that that's juicy and it sticks in a really nice way. So that, I guess that's sticking the landing, uh, for sure. Everybody knows this. I love really weird games that have you know a very, very non traditional sort of a point to them. There's a game called Curtain that I absolutely adore, and it is a. a purposely ugly and garish looking sort of 3d space that you're exploring and it's about an abusive relationship and it's basically exploring this person's house and all the different objects sort of uh, strike up you know sort of images and they strike up uh, thoughts that they had and conversations they had with their abusive partner things like that i i love stuff like that i love games that are very very expressive in ways that are not uh, you know, the sort of thing where if you ask my, my, my parents what video games are, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess my parents now know uh, because I talk about this <laughs> stuff all the time. You know, somebody like my parents' friends, like they, they right. think video games, and they would think there's a very specific image that comes to that. And I love the stuff that's way out on the fringes that's, that's you know, sort of saying or doing something weird and interesting. I love games that do weird things with architecture. I love all of that stuff. So for me, that's that's where this comes in. Maybe it's not Chuck Jones, but it's definitely doing something a little weird and different i'm gonna not look okay and i'm gonna think of a number i'm gonna think of a number today is the 27th mm-hmm, it is my mom's birthday so for my mom Aww. we'll go to 27 that'd be a good question i hope it is if it's bad don't I'll, screw I'll this up number upset. 27 oh this is a very austin question <laughs> great <laughs> this is specifically addressed to austin i'll ask it anyway uh-huh. maybe we can keep it in for austin okay uh it might be it might be relevant to you it's relevant to me all right as well this comes from keith l 
And it says, Austin, do you miss the freelance life? <laughs> I imagine it's amazing to work with Vice, something that was addressed in the first episode. How do you feel about where you are now as opposed to where you were a few years ago? Now, at least that part we can both answer, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Where no, you yeah. Are we, now. I think we've, we have both been freelancers over our over yes. our time in, in writing about games. I No, I don't miss um, the time <laughs> I've done freelancing at all. I found... Oh, hold on. Austin in the chat says... Uh, oh, Austin's here in the chat. He says, no, I was making $12,000 a year and I was teaching too. So Austin does Sounds not miss right. the freelance life. Austin um, doesn't miss it. Uh, uh, freelancing is a hustle. Um, uh, it is possible uh, to be a successful freelancer that you know makes regular money and is able to make that feel as as close as you can to sort of like a stable uh, job that has regular paychecks, but that takes a long time and that's it's extremely stressful to get to that place. I found in the couple of times over the years where I had to do freelancing um, as a result of layoffs or, or, or other various things, I was not equipped to deal with freelancing. Um, like uh, personally, it stressed me in in really dire ways that I, I just I, I realized like even if there was some magical scenario where I, you could like theoretically make more money doing freelancing like I c- could not handle the stress of doing it because what I like about a regular paycheck other than the fact that it's regular um, is <laughs> is like you can have weekends you can have bad days it affords failure in a way that uh, you just don't get with freelancing where it's like on the weekends like i can enjoy my time with my daughter knowing that like my my check is showing up the next week if i'm a freelancer i'm spending those days thinking i could be making money right now like i'm losing money by choosing to spend time with my daughter like that's not a that's not a question i want to be faced with so like over over my history i've always i have stayed with jobs i didn't like i have taken jobs i didn't want because it was important to me to have a regular paycheck that I knew I could provide for my family, like stability and work. I, you know, you can budget around a, a regular paycheck, um, even if it's less money than than, than as ideal. Um, and it gave me a peace of mind that I knew was important to me because I was not going to be able to deal with. Like, of course, I could deal with it, but it's not something I wanted to deal with, and so I would find ways to 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 not do that. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't. How? What has your experience been like? Yeah, so I, I'm in the weird boat where I have never not had full time work, but I also, especially my my sort of first jobs out of grad school, uh, I, I graduated with a truly massive amount of student debt, and so uh, still to this day, my student loan payments are more than my rent every month, and, and they were they were at the time when I was making less than half of what I make now. So I had I had something like five staff writer positions. And I was teaching. Uh, I, I got a little burned out uh, and you're doing that. But living I need, in San Francisco, right? Yeah, San Francisco and Boston, which is you know a little less insane than San Francisco, but still somewhat expensive yeah. uh, for sure. Uh, so yeah, it 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 was something I needed to do. I needed the extra money uh, for sure. The thing I missed the least about freelancing is invoicing <laughs> and sort of keeping track of all of that stuff because I'm fine with deadlines. I was fine with you know like okay, I know what I got to do. I right. got to do this, this, and this. But then the the sort of the invoice and the tracking the invoice because inevitably every place is a disaster when it comes to accounts payable and invoicing and actually getting your money uh, and, and all that kind of stuff. It's the extra bullshit on top of just the work itself that really, really got me. That and you know paying self-employment tax, which is Ugh. nasty and gnarly and not something you want to deal with if you don't have to. No. 
Oh, God. <laughs> I don't miss it at all. I mean, it, you know, certainly I miss some of the folks I worked with when I was freelancing. I miss, you know, some of the publications, many of which are shuttered at this point. Uh, so that tells you a little something else about freelancing and games uh, specifically. Yeah, it doesn't but pay anything. Oh. It pays shit. Yeah, it's sure, it's sure not a not a nice, stable gig and not a not a fun and lucrative I mean, to give people, so. like, some perspective, like, uh, I mean, it didn't always used to be uh, this way. Uh, you know, the consequences sure. of um, the arrival of the Internet, um, as great as it's been for the proliferation of voices, has had disastrous effects on the ability to pay people uh, to do that uh, work. And, you know, it used to be the case that you were, I mean, and, and this was true even in my early, when I was getting started writing about games for magazines when I was in college. And uh, so then I, you know, I was like, you know, 20 years old. So this is 12 years ago. So it's not super long ago, but like I'd write for magazines to get paid per word. I don't know. <laughs> nice. I can't remember what the rate was. You know, it wasn't quite the New York Times, but, you know, it was it was substantial relative to what you would get paid for the same work these days. And it used to be, yeah, that you could, you know, if you were writing a 1,200-word feature, um, you were getting paid per word, which means that was coming out to a pretty hefty sum. Now, these days, you could just get paid a flat rate to, the, um, that sometimes varies based on the word count you've worked out with the person uh, you're writing for. But it's just... There's just not nearly as much money in it as uh, there used to be. There's a lot more competition for the spots that uh, there are. Um, and then as a freelancer, there's just so much wasted time. You are sending off pitches, uh, waiting to hear back about that pitch, yeah. negotiating for the rate. Um, then even when you write it, you know, yeah, you're tra you're trying to get paid, and it may not even be your editor's fault that you haven't gotten paid in a timely fashion. So you're you're waiting. It's usually not. Yeah, yeah. you're you're waiting. <laughs> if you've got a good editor, and we have good editors, but right. Um, right. Uh, that you know all of that stuff is wasted time, energy, and stress that takes away from doing like freelancing. For most people, is not conducive to doing good work. Like, and it's why um, having more, you know, like when we talk about like diversity and staffs and stuff like that, um, like there are a lot of diversity of uh, of experiences uh, out there that are writing about games, but they tend to be writing about games in a freelance or uh, free capacity in their own blogs and. The, I, as someone that has done this for a long time, my best work is done when, you know, the stressors around the rest of my life are minimal and you can focus on the work. And so, like, freelancing does not – is not conducive to the best work. Like, stable, uh, steady paychecks are conducive to the best work. And so there's a lot of voices out there from, you know, like, uh, different – backgrounds that they may be writing but they're not doing it in the most ideal position because they're having to do it with freelancing which as we've outlined comes with all sorts of stressors in your life yeah and I, I think we're both saying this of course with like respect to the folks that do freelance and who are making it work it's just it's hard yeah that it's such a grind yeah i mean you, know? you, you and, do what you got to do but thanks to all our freelancers we love them we love you you do amazing work it's just uh I, in a better world we could just hire everyone and just, you know, have that stability for everyone, I think. At least I would. In my in my happy, better world, everybody <laughs> who does good work gets paid a fair amount for it and has a stable paycheck. But, you know, of course. In Austin's absence, I have to I have to do the socialism thing, I guess, you know, make sure. There you go. It's not compulsory, but it is what I believe. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's fair enough. I think we probably have time for one more question. You wanna give me one more number between one and uh, one twenty four there? Um, let's do we should go higher. Let's uh let's do uh eighty. Eighty. Eighty, all 80. right. No wait, hold on. Great. No. 
Nope. We're going to do 66 because that's how old your mom is. That's We're right. So the for my mom, hey, I really appreciate this. This is really nice. My mom really appreciates this. <laughs> you know, through me, she appreciates Your mom this. really appreciates long, uh, exhaustive conversations on the ups and downs of freelancing and, <laughs> freelancing, and video games. You know, it's, it's what she does. Well, she, you know, she saw me do it for eight years, I think, <laughs> seven years. So she, she knows. All right. So this one comes from Bob. Thank you, Bob. While this is not an entirely recent trend, I have found an increasing number of games use enemy health and damage as a way of managing difficulty far beyond what makes sense narratively. Games like Dark Souls have large health pools and flat damage reduction, which leads to very drawn-out fights if you're slightly undergeared. After a new game plus or two, even the most basic underling can have many times the health and damage of the player character. This is most common in Diablo-style loot games. Just about anything with a difficulty slider relies on this measure of difficulty. Adding new AI routines or pathing is more difficult, I understand. But how would you change the difficulty in these types of games otherwise? I think Hmm. the classic example, and I guess I'll just start with this very classic example, is sort of the way I know that Halo always kind of did uh, difficulties, which really was pretty much entirely AI. Was, you know, the AI just gets smarter. Fights get a little bit more intense because you're actually fighting enemies that are better at, at being your enemy, basically. So I know it's it adds a lot more time and cost, and so that's another blue sky kind of thing, but AI, AI is my answer. Yeah, well, I think it's, you know, it's, it depends on the game, right? So, like, you know, like a game like Dark Souls, I think it works in the way it's set up because you're it's a stat game. Um, and so, yeah. like, it's important as the player, like, if, if it is if you're equipping gear for statistical reasons that are, you know, you, you're crunching the numbers on, uh, you want to know and have an understanding of the impact of that. And so it makes sense for some games that were like, you don't need to actually, either the damage is reflected in sort of like how the, the creature or the human or the robot or whatever, like it'll show damage, you know, pieces will fall off. That's fine. But like for Dark Souls or a lot of these loot based games, like they're numbers. It's like in some ways or in some levels, they're numbers games. And so, having a representative uh, idea of what those numbers are doing rather than having to just hit them enough times and then, then just miraculously die. Um, that, that you know, I think it depends on game to game. Like, and I'm not sure that I would necessarily change Dark Souls' uh, approach to that because I think it works for um, what it's trying to accomplish. And then if you were to take away those bars, I think it's, I think it's different because, like, like it's when I j- jump into a fight in Dark Souls and I, I hit an enemy or hit a boss and realize it's going to be a hundred hits before I put them down. Like that puts the fear of God (laughs) in you. Like that's, you know, it's whereas like in my mind, if I hit that enemy and I took off a third of their health, like there's a far different tension to that battle. Right. Like, so like the, the life bar is actually communicating something about the difficulty and what you're up against um, and what you need to pull off. And so the life bar is actually a tool of the designer to convey and sort of uh, enable tension in a way that wouldn't be, I don't think, nearly as possible, even if you were to attack an enemy and a piece of their, you know, if a piece of their leg flies off, like, well, is that, how much damage is that? Like, I'm not right. sure. Um, and so, so for, I think some games that's totally fine. Um, but for for a game like Dark Souls, like that, that and especially because it's a game based on sort of intimidation um, and in and, and, and giving fear to the player, like realizing that you've got a long ass battle ahead of you um, is a way <laughs> is a way of making that work a little bit better. Yeah, I think I totally agree with what you're saying, and and you know, two things coming to my mind through what you were just saying is stakes and mistakes. I guess yeah. like 
a way of raising the stakes in such a way that, yeah, it's ratcheting the tension. It is more difficult because the stakes are higher and also mistakes cost more. It sounds mm-hmm. like that's that's a big part of it. Like, oh, yeah, this is going to take 100 hits. I better not mess this up. Like, I'm going to have to get each one of these without actually, you know, getting my face caved in. Uh, and that's a much more difficult prospect. So that makes a lot of sense to me. I guess what you're saying and also just sort of, yeah, anything that raises the stakes and makes mistakes a lot worse is going to make things harder in an interesting way, and I, most likely. Yeah, and I, I think some, sometimes this this topic comes up uh, in games that like bring up like sort of uh, like when you have like numbers popping up, like let's say playing a, 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 sh- a first person shooter where like the number, like the damage count is like popping off for like each bullet, like like uh, 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 uh Borderlands or something like that, where like each shot you're seeing like 306 or something like that. Or you can tell if like something's a critical hit or it did poison damage. Um, I, some, I, I'm, I understand sometimes people think that stuff goes too far. Like I find that I really like there's something satisfying about that information dump out of a game. I'm not saying every game <laughs> needs to have sure. that, but I will admit to being like, there's something real cool about seeing like a real high number come out. Like getting a headshot is one thing, but like having it confirmed that it did like a, a ridiculous amount of damage because you see like it pop with like a thousand when you're normally doing like, you know, I don't know, 300 damage. Eh, there's, there's something satisfying about yeah. that. Sometimes those numbers just feel good. Exactly. Ah, well, speaking of feel good numbers, I think that's going to just about do it for us today. What's our what's our number? What are, what are we at for if, time? Uh, oh, uh, we're fifty minutes in to the we're fifty one minutes in to the fifty first podcast of of Waypoint Perfect. Radio. Perfect. I knew the numbers would feel good. I knew they'd all line up just so beautifully, so wonderfully. So, uh, Patrick, where can people find you online? They can find me at Patrick Klepek, uh over on the Twitter. Awesome. You can find me if you if you want some good dad jokes uh, at Danielle Ri on Twitter. And thank you, of course, to Tim Barnes. Tim Barnes, oh four. 451. I always put the O in there. I'm sorry, Tim. He's amazing. He's our producer. Dylan Coburn, who doesn't have a Twitter, but is also an amazing producer. Shoutouts, of course, to Bo N, um, who lets us use his song, Miss You, and his EP, Pale Machine. You can go to waypoint.zone slash Bo I know this, but I'm looking at my computer so I don't say something completely outlandish <laughs> and put, you know, extra O's in there, extra zeros. You can find us, of course, on the internet. You can find us on Twitter. At Waypoint, you can go to Facebook, Waypoint Vice, YouTube, Waypoint Vice. Find all the amazing stuff we do and not amazing stuff we do. Just all of our stuff at uh, waypoint.vice.com. Thank you so much, everybody. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna end not on peace, but on a have a good day. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.